This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy Woo! and sadness oh. and anger. Ah. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. Ah. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. Ah. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So how do you do this? <laughs> yeah. Great so, question. Yeah, we figure it out every time. Um, <laughs> I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And, and I'm, I'm a, a writer, writer but... <laughs> Welcome to I'm a Writer But. Today on the show, we have Catherine Nichols. Catherine is a writer. She's written essays for Jezebel, Aeon, Electric Literature, and other places all over the internet. She's also the co-host of the Lit Century podcast with Sandra Newman at Literary Hub. And she's also the mother of three children. Welcome, Catherine. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Did you, uh, so we asked you to have something to read today because, you know, that's what we ask every single guest. I don't know why I'm prefacing this as if it's a, also, be a mystery surprise. It's not an ask. It's it's a demand. It's a demand. <laughs> Lindsay's right. Uh, yeah. So we're excited to hear what you have for us today. Um, so, oh my gosh, I always expect that um, when it's my turn to read at a reading, I'm going to be a cool writer who's really good at this. Um, In fact, I am not, but I still want to tell you a little bit about the thing that I'm going to read before I read it. Sure. Um, Just because I'm not expecting you to to listen in a way that you'd like pick up context clues or anything. It's about, (laughs) I mean, you can, if you want to, but feel free to just let my voice uh, wash over you. Um, it's about a 10 year old boy in the early 19th century in St. Petersburg in Russia going to an audition at the ballet school there. And, um, he spends a certain amount of time daydreaming about his imaginary friend. So it's uh, fiction. That sounds amazing. <laughs> uh, all right, here we go. Valentin was wearing his blue brocade jacket and he smelled bad. In the city air outdoors, he hadn't noticed it, but when he was inside the ballet school with all the other boys and their families, the heat of the crowd brought unclean air up from inside his clothing. He knew he wouldn't be allowed to play the impromptu games many of the other boys had begun. His mother would want him to stay close in the crowd. These boys were all about his size and probably about 10 years old as well, mostly wearing brown or gray wool coats or taking them off in the heat. No one else was wearing blue like a fanciful little king from a fable. 
His cuffs were too short, leaving a full inch of bony wrist visible, with, even with his arms straight down at his sides. The big door behind them kept opening and more boys would come in. His mother pinched his ear. Pay attention. The hall had a stone tile floor and a big curved staircase. The highest steps were long, but the lowest ones were as long as the biggest room in their apartment, enormous slabs of stone. Whoever had first invented a curved staircase with a curved banister must have astonished the world, he thought. He wanted to remember this staircase. The boys and their parents and their ragged line weren't rich people, despite the richness of the building. The boys looked like the sons of laundresses and cab drivers that he saw getting into fights and playing war outside his window every day. At the top of the curving staircase, he could only see an ornate iron rail and nothing behind it. He asked his mind to remember everything so he could think about it later. He gave a name to the memory. He called it Staircase, so he wouldn't forget before he was home again. Staircase. If they ask you who your father is, he's dead. Good, that's right. Valentine's mother stood straight with her smooth nails and her hat and her upright back. She was the finest of the crowd of mothers. He was proud that she didn't stand like a woman who had pawned their dining table and their chairs to buy food that summer. She always swore that she'd buy back their things in better times, but Valentine didn't know where the money for better times would come from. In his early memories, their apartment had been full of nice things that had all gone to the pawn shop one by one. He could still remember books with color illustrations, a clock on the mantel, a piano he had plinked on when his mother had played in loud rolls that vibrated through the floor. Those were all long gone, but his mother still looked like a woman who would select one of her many books and read aloud from it. No one would think that she shared a bed with her own old mother. The absence of each piece of furniture had been in a, like an erasure in his capacity to see for a few days until it became normal and his habits grew over the sudden lack of table and it didn't matter anymore. Valentine was hungry and he saw that he had been waiting in line for a long time, so he began to think of Adasha. Adasha was a boy explorer. At that moment, he was under the sea. The fish made a curtain across his view to the left. Valentine turned his head and moved his hand. The, swift, the fish swept across and upward toward the surface of the ocean. It was a school of flat fish with yellow eyes. They'd never seen a diver in a bariatric suit before. They didn't even know if they should fear him. Their tiny fish minds only felt curiosity as he lifted a bronze glove toward them. Adasha wanted to explore the underwater canyon, but he began to slip. He was falling and the coral was breaking off when he tried to grab onto it. He was gasping for breath. There was no more oxygen coming through his breathing pipe. In fact, he could see the under edge of the pipe against the light of the surface drifting downward. Valentine lifted his head as he watched in his mind's eye. Adasha had only a moment before he would suffocate and drown. Who cut the pipe? Had he been double-crossed by his assistant? He could scarcely move in the heavy suit. And there was a shark. The shark actually bit through, no, not a shark, a sea lion. Valentine had read about sea lions and he wasn't sure what they looked like. He imagined a swaying underwater mane that was a sea lion and it was chewing through the rope with its enormous teeth. It was above him. The lion was between Adasha and the surface, between him and the boat. He had to swim upward and with his last breath of air in his lungs as his suit became heavier and fouler smelling around him. It was still horribly cold. His breath was making a fog in the front of his mask and the sea lion thudded against the outside of the suit with crushing force, blowing all the air out of Adasha's lungs at once. It was their turn at the desk. Valentine's mother slapped the back of his hand to get his attention. My son's name is Valentin Sergeyevich Filipov. 
He's 10 years old. The woman at the desk wrote down his name and gestured without looking him. Through to the right for all boys. Awesome. Thank you so much, Catherine. <laughs> Thank I you. did not want you to stop. I know. <laughs> How wonderful. Oh well, God. thank you. It's funny, even though I had read those pages before, the, the question that immediately came to me is I was wondering, when you were drafting this, how early did Adasha come into the piece? Was it something that was right there from the beginning? Or was it something that you had kind of grafted into the novel? Well, I think, uh, I think in our group chat we've pretty well established that most writers don't approach their writing the same way that I do um I would love to hear wait, more about that yes I, I want to hear <laughs> I think like I, I um so I started with um I started with this essay that I read that's actually the um the, it's by Joan Acachella it was printed in a New York Review of Books it's actually the introduction to the journal that um Nijinsky kept as he was losing his mind. Um, and he was a very, he's an early 20th century um, choreographer and ballet dancer and uh, international sex symbol. And also he was kind of in the role of Lolita from the book Lolita while he was also being kind of an epochal genius in his field. Um, he did the choreography for the Rite of Spring that, you know, everyone knows the Rite of Spring and how like audiences lost their mind um, and that it was partly Stravinsky's music and partly Nijinsky's um, choreography. And it, it just kind of came over me like this, like a thunderclap. I, was, I, I wanted to write a novel about where somebody would get the psychological strength to do really powerful original work when they're not the powerful one, mm. when they're not being given the things that they need to have to create themselves. Um, I think there's probably a lot of people um, like, uh, you know, young gymnastics girls mm -hmm. um, where there's the story you know, behind all the gymnastics is all the abuse of gymnasts. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but it's like, it's pretty rare that the story of somebody who's, who's doing something that someone else isn't telling them what to do, that they're doing something all new and it's all their own. Um, and it's really changing a, like a, an art form, sort of right. changing the, the, um, like Picasso, whatever, the story around Picasso does not involve him being the abusee in mm -hmm. an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that he's essentially given the freedom and dignity to do what he needs to do. Um, so sort of at the outset, I understood that what I was going to have to do was under, was find a way to write about the way this character thinks because the story on the top level is just about a series of for a long time, pretty bad things happening to this person. Mm -hmm. But what I wanted the reader to be reading for is to understand 
how he can create himself under these circumstances. Such that, and I was like, I wanted to give the reader a framework to understand where, when he does do work of genius later, where is it coming from? which also meant I had to figure out how do dancers and choreographers think because I was not a dancer or a choreographer. So how did you do that? How did you, how did you get into that headspace or body space, I guess? Um, well, I did take a lot of ballet lessons. Um, and I also, um, like, I just, I didn't even know how to, I didn't even know how to watch ballet. And I We're didn't talking know- about as an adult, right? This is, just as yes. you're drafting now, not not that you grew up with, grew up dancing or at all. Um, not really. And um, I mean, this is it's relevant that um, I'm very tall. <laughs> <laughs> How um, tall are like, you? I am like as tall as the sun. I'm like oh, uh, <laughs> you're statuesque. Um, I'm like two statuesques, one on top of the other. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, I'm six foot one, but um, I was tall as a kid too. And I think it was pretty clear to everyone in my like six-year-old ballet class that this was a non-starter for me. Um, (laughs) So I didn't stay in ballet for very long as a kid, but I did like it, but um, I didn't actually know how to watch ballet. I didn't know the difference between a good performance and an adequate performance. So I ended up having to start with something I did know how to watch. I watched like live performances of like rock musicians i watched like queen mm-hmm. i was know, gonna say queen david bowie yes like, absolutely where i was like okay i already know what these songs sound like i know what the energy and the voice sounds like i was like what are they actually doing on stage mm. and then i had to so i had to sort of i wrote like a lot of notes about <laughs> those things and then i was like all right i need to take that and i need to watch ballet and then read what people have written about ballet performances and try to understand what is the difference between one dancer and another dancer if you're already in a level of um of mastery that it's not like one person is doing it correctly and the other one is doing it incorrectly you know Mm -hmm. like what what is the actual part of the self that's being put on stage um and then create a framework where I could write about that so that the reader would be able to feel it. So was all that uh, research and, you know, figuring out your way into understanding what ballet was when you're watching it in front of you, was all that front loaded work and then you began drafting or was this coinciding with actually producing pages? Um. Well, I guess I have a pretty, um, (laughs) the word that's coming to mind is bad, but it's obviously, (laughs) it's not a bad way of writing a novel. It's just an inefficient way of writing a novel. Right. Um, Like I just wrote every scene that could possibly happen. And then I wrote it from the perspective of any character in it. My goodness. (laughs) Just kind of narrowed down like which of the scenes I was actually going to use um or another were you having fun as you did that 
Oh yeah. I, I love writing. Yeah. Um, it sounds I, like you just like were nerding out, you know, like you <laughs> yes, were just like, right. in the zone. Out. Yes. Exactly it's, it. it's so exciting to hear somebody just like it is getting deep like this. Yeah. It felt like this, it was like the scale of challenge that I wanted to take on. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I felt like I had the, I felt like I had this vision from, and, and like, it was only getting stronger of something that felt really important. Mm. And it felt like it was, I mean, this was like, it felt like the whole country was collapsing mm. and my own health was really bad, which also I, I felt like I was writing against the clock to some extent, because I didn't really know like to what extent I was going to be able to recover. Um, and I had three small children. So that was also oh a factor. But just like the sense that like the world is actually ending and like maybe there isn't actually going to be a future for the kids, you know? Mm. Um, and so that was, that was part of this feeling like, um, like for those of us who couldn't necessarily jump into a time machine and go more than like 15 years into the past without losing civil rights in some way, like, why are we only getting free now while the world is ending? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Um, so this question of like, why is my character only able to get free as the world is ending, like toward the Russian revolution, which did not happen in the correct timeline for Nijinsky, just, you know. I'm we were sure. going to call you on that, actually. So I'm glad you said it. <laughs> I know all the ballet nerds in your audience are probably like, how could she say they that? They are furious right now. <laughs> anyway, I, I messed around with the timeline a little bit because I was like, I just want him to get free. The real Nijinsky did not get free. I want my character to get free. But it really took, you know, the logic of the book. You can you can see as you're understanding the logic of, of the world in the research I was doing, I was like, there's really no other way that this person could have gotten free if it weren't for essentially unmaking the whole society. Mm. Like it had to be the end of the world for him to get out. How long have you been working on this book? Um, I guess my youngest kid is six now. And I started taking ballet lessons soon after he was born. Wow. Um, but even by then, I'd already been working on it in one form or another for a while. So I don't know. It's, it's kind of terrible to think about in a way. <laughs> I love the, the Like, phrase. how long do you guys work on books? Like, how long? Um, what's a normal amount for you? Oh, man. Well, I can tell you, I definitely do not approach it the same way as you, Catherine. I'm not built tough enough to do even a quarter <laughs> of what you just described. Um, I, I think the one that I'm hopefully nearing the end with right now is it's been five years. Um, but five years spent very differently than any of the years that you, I mean, like, I just, I, I don't have, I don't have the capacity to do research in that way. I'm not. I don't know. I don't, I, I, it's never my instinct um, to approach it that way. 
do you do you do a lot of research Lindsay? on on i'm trying to think like on eat only was there a lot of stuff that you were researching or i know because i kind of came from that world so i was you know i was drawing on a lifetime of research i guess mm-hmm. <laughs> um but no i can i can see it's like you said this this came to you like in a thunderclap and there was no denying it right and you had to yeah. you had to do these things you had to get into it you know like i um i think i'm still like mining the details of my own life and the people in my life and and like trying to understand time <laughs> yeah yeah and um and but I mean, not, you're obviously doing the same thing in, you know, in your work, it's just, you're, you're doing all this amazing, you know, um, world finding world building at the same time, rebuilding. Um, so I, 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 it sounds remarkable to me. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I also, I was thinking about why I have a really hard time writing about things that are closer to my own life. Um, Like I often feel like I could start writing something, um, you know, contemporary, let's just say. And then I, I'm like, I want to push it farther in the past in some way Mm. Um, because it makes me feel uncomfortable to not know the outcome of people's efforts. Mm. like I feel superstitious about writing something like if I wrote something and I didn't know COVID was about to hit it. Like, can you look at, you know, January or February, 2020 without knowing that in fact, it's like, there's this irony inside it. Mm-hmm. And I think people often actually mine that pretty hard with, um, I feel like September 11th novels, for whatever reason, are always kind of like, look at these people who don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, is this a novel set in 2001? I thought there's going to be some irony. August about... 2001. <laughs> no, it, exactly. But it's like, we are all those people. All the yes, time. totally. Yep. Yeah. I don't and know. I just, it's like, it makes me uneasy to feel like there are these dramatic ironies in my own life and in the lives of the people I know that I, the writer, am not in control of. Mm. Yeah. I think that's, you know, like as I'm writing, I feel like I'm writing to understand and it quickly veers from, you know, actual things or actual people, you know, like, so that's where I feel is my safe space. There is like, I'm not telling what actually happened. I'm sort of using, you know, these details that I've uh, like with eat only when you're hungry. I, um, I had an idea to write a book about witches, which would have sent me down a similar path as you, Catherine, I think, (laughs) or I was going to write this other thing. And I sat down and I started writing this other thing and I could not stop. Um, What's the best feeling? It is. It was, it was great, but it was, you know, terrifying in all the ways that you describe, like, you know, a lot of worry and fear, but, but also cleansing. Yeah. Yeah. Do your kids uh, talk to you about your writing? Do they understand what you're doing? 
So I also write stuff that uh, I write essays and stuff that gets published on the internet. And um, I think that they have a real relationship with that fact Mm. um, that makes me a cool mom who's not like (laughs) other moms. (laughs) One time, one of my kids used some uh, internet acronym um, like AFK and then paused and was explaining to me what it meant. (laughs) And then another kid said, she already knows she's an internet writer. Oh my gosh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. Um, which obviously um, I hold close to my heart, like a locket, check oh it every God. day. I <laughs> <laughs> just think I'm cool. That's a deathbed memory right there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, actually, I, I have to say that um, with the pandemic, we've done a lot more screen time. Mm. like everyone else don't know what you're talking mm-hmm. about yeah yeah <laughs> um but i actually i didn't realize how much i was gonna love sharing internet culture with my kids huh. oh wow i thought that i was gonna find it more threatening and i was gonna be more worried about them and i wouldn't say that that's not a factor but um like there's so much stuff that is so funny on the internet and they are such wonderful audiences for funny stuff on the internet that mm-hmm. I, you know, like hyperbole and a half, like Ali Brush, you know, like uh, do all the things. They just read it like it had not been around for <laughs> 20 years or whatever it is now. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a pleasure. It was such a delight. How old are they? I know you said your youngest is six, but yeah, my uh, my oldest is thirteen, and oh I have a ten year old, and then six year old. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So they are they're they're in that world. Yeah, they're they're just so much fun um, as internet citizens. Um, I really, I just wasn't expecting to enjoy it that much. That really gives me hope. <laughs> um yeah and they're still themselves online yeah yeah that's what that's the thing right there right like that's what you want to protect yeah and I'm sure like I totally believe all of the parents who say like oh my incredibly sweet 13 year old suddenly got you know in this really bad corner of the internet I, I mean knock on wood I don't want any dramatic ironies to come up in my own life for having Mm -hmm. said that Mm -hmm. but just seeing the same really clever sincere social smart side of them that they bring to other parts of their life seeing them be those people online also I don't know it's it's just a, a context where I'm used to sort of reading people as equals, even if they're very different ages than me. Mm. And then, um, so seeing my kids in that role, it's almost the first time I've seen them just as fellow people without the fact that I'm obviously a million years older and their mom. <laughs> um, it, it like, it peeled back a couple layers, which I, I was really not expecting that. Have you written about that, Catherine? 
I have not. This is the debut of that idea in public. It's lovely. I love it. I love it too. It's definitely not something I ever would have arrived at thinking for several more years. So I'm happy to be thinking about it now. Um, well, maybe I'll, uh, oh, so I am about to start having childcare for the first time in the year, I think. Oh my God. Um, All right. Yeah. Jeez. So it might be that I'll pitch it someplace. Yes. Um, you heard it here first, New York times. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I know you, Alex, you've got some time before you're looking at kids on the internet. Um, how about you, Lindsay? Hi. My oldest is eight. He just turned eight okay. in January. And then I have a five-year-old and a, and a two-year-old. Well, she's almost three. Um, yeah. And he was, he, you know, he was on virtual school um, for a year. And so at some point he discovered he could go on YouTube and watch videos of people playing among us or um, oh, yeah. like whatever video game. And you know all about him. And I tried to be like, cool about that. Like, all right, cool. I see what you're doing here. You're interested in this, you know, but then he just started doing it like all day. He was like not paying attention and he was going on. So, but the other thing about him that, that shocks me is that he listens to me. (laughs) (laughs) So when we talk about it, you know, you know, like he, he agrees that he shouldn't do it and he doesn't do it. And it's just like, I, and I try to tell him like, without letting him, you know, know that he that he could choose otherwise <laughs> i'm like you know how amazing you are right like you're listening to me and then it's like but you know that's what you're supposed to do right like so it's oh, fine never mind yeah, also like big <laughs> oldest child energy there love it yeah yeah so um so yeah because i just i didn't feel comfortable with him just like being on youtube you know like that's oh yeah yeah I, so. um, <laughs> definitely but and anyway. he, he's eight and also doesn't have a solicitous older sibling kind of checking that he's only watching appropriate things. Right. Yeah. So I showed him that I can check his internet history and he was like, what, what, what? <laughs> <laughs> he was like, oh no. <laughs> so he'll, now he'll come up to me and he'll go, mom, we were doing this video in art today and I accidentally clicked on the YouTube logo and it opened YouTube up, YouTube up, but I closed it right away. Cause he thinks I'm going oh, in no. and like checking and I'm Aww. like, it's fine. You know, like it's totally fine. Oh my God. Oh, I know. You know, one thing that I, I was thinking about the pandemic also, because having fully remote school for the kids is um, there's a possibility of having so much more control over them. I know. Basically any adult has ever had over a child because, you know, kids used to, uh, certainly the first person to observe this, but uh, they used to just go outside. <laughs> what? <laughs> they used to no. speak to other people. Write that one down. <laughs> it's true. New York Times. Hey, ding uh, dong. Uh, but I, I just think that like, even in previous pandemics, there's just no way that adults had the amount of control over their children right. that we potentially have now. And um I, I think that there's something alarming about how much control it's possible to have over them. It's very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. And so I, I want I, him to have privacy and I want him to have his own little kid life, you know, exactly that. Yeah. And, and um, so it's very uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable even from a, like an, like a input standpoint. I mean, the fact that even during a pandemic, even during remote school, it's so easy to make, communicate with everyone 
at all times, any members of your family. And I don't know, I feel like there's a certain kind of impulse to maybe draw out um, input. I mean, input's what I'm thinking of. Just like, wow, you know, is this normal at this age? Well, yeah, okay, we've been <laughs> we've been cooped up in the basement for four months, so that's not normal. I understand <laughs> that part, but uh, you know, based on what you, you know, I don't know. I just feel like there's so much more um, opportunity for people to chime in and well-intentioned i think you know the majority of the time but as it, it just it, it feels it feels connected to the the control aspect is just also there's it's information coming yeah exactly yeah. just that's related to how you're parenting if that's the correct way as if such a thing exists and i don't know it's troubling yeah mm-hmm. yeah i i think that that's i, I think that that that's like the parent of younger children aspect of the thing that I'm thinking right it's alarming that there's nowhere for my adolescent child to have privacy from me where he's just allowed to think his own thoughts Mm -hmm. and like read something that I can't know about Mm -hmm. or talk to somebody that I couldn't be aware of um you know, that I couldn't check his internet history or whatever it is. Uh, I mean, I don't check his internet history because I want him to have privacy because he's so much older than eight, you know, like he's, right. he really should not be that accountable to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I want him to do at least a couple things that I disapprove. Of. <laughs> I know, be a kid, <laughs> right? Yeah, like be a kid or be a teenager and, um, you know, have those sort of selfhood defining experiences where you get into some trouble and then it's you who decides that it's trouble and it's you who decides to back up, not your parents telling you, like, that's what trouble looks like. It's like you feel it inside yourself and you decide how to handle it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, like, I already felt like I had the potential of too much control before the pandemic and then with the pandemic I was like I need to break my own rules and I need to I need to have too little control almost in order to balance this this bizarreness I need to just let him watch YouTube whenever he wants or whatever it is you know Mm -hmm. like I need to let him sort of overdo it in some way Mm -hmm. Um, if that's what he wants to do, because I don't know. I don't know if you've noticed how many children's books there are about having anxiety these days. Mm -hmm. Um, I just want, I want all of our kids to have space to develop a sense of self um, outside of being told like, yes, you've correctly developed your sense of self. Uh, you <laughs> oh, man. Right. Go on to sense of self, uh, level two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think Sorry, I need to go. No, problems. no, it's fine. I'm just Googling those books right now for myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, like the anxious turtle, the anxious bunny, the anxious goose, those books. Yeah. Those are in my cart. <laughs> <laughs> So Catherine, how do you fit in the amount of reading that you do for the Lit Century podcast and just other reading? Uh, how have you done it 
during the pandemic. And I don't know, I just feel like you're one of the more well-read people that I know. I just was curious what, what reading looks like in your life, how you, how you fit it in. That's really kind of you to say, I often feel like I'm not that person anymore. I feel like I used to be that person. Um, but, um, okay. One more kid related topic. Um, I think that there was obviously when each kid was born, it was really difficult to read and write. Mm. But then when each kid learned to talk, it was another ledge in my ability to read and write, like another like part of my brain disappeared or got occupied by things kids want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Just like the verbal onslaught, I guess. Mm-hmm. Sorry, kids, if you ever listen to this, <laughs> I love hearing about Minecraft. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh, it is. It is relentless. And, and I want to be the person that they talk to about these things. Like I want them to know they can, cause I want it to continue throughout their lives. Like I can tell mom stuff or like, she's interested, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. But then it's just like, Oh my God, <laughs> I'm just trying to brush my teeth alone. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's like the part of my brain that, that gets zapped by hearing about kid thoughts is the part that reads. <laughs> um, I'm laughing but I'm also crying (laughs) like obviously I I still read a lot I read many many multiples of 10 books less than I used to and I really feel the difference between feeling like a basically well-read person who mostly knows most of the books people talk about to not feeling like that person to to feeling like you know like i'm holding on to the tail of the kite of being well read well i can't even see the kite so don't worry about it don't forget <laughs> the kite the, the kite is gone um that's not true alex but uh that's not, that's not how i relate to you anyway it's not how i think of you as a person um but yeah i um, one thing i do is i listen to a lot of audiobooks because um, I find them very enchanting. I, I, I think that the, there, there's less effort to just sink into the story and to mm. feel it playing in my head. Uh, and then I, if, like, if I have something to do with my hands, like playing Candy Crush or The Sims or something like that, and I'm listening to an audiobook, I'm like, that, that's it for me. That's, um, there may also be a snack somewhere in this picture. <laughs> so I was curious with the amount of, so with an audiobook, if you're preparing for the podcast and it's something that you obviously know you're going to be talking about at length and you're really going to be getting into minutia and potentially highlighting specific senses and so on and so forth. How are you doing that? listening to the book i was i was curious about like the granular detail of this because every time i listen to the pod i'm like if she's listening to that book how did she remember that how did she <laughs> how did you pull that without you know stopping underlining whatever i was curious about that um i do press pause and i have a sticky note open for each of the books that i'm reading for the podcast um just for context i don't know if we actually said it but the podcast it comes out every week and it's not every single week that we have a new book sometimes we do more than one book, uh, more than one episode per book. Um, but our overall project is to read 
one book for each year of the 20th century. So I'm usually reading a bunch of books for that at the same time. Um, we try to get some short ones and some long ones in there so that it's not all, um, you know, the doorstops. Mm-hmm. But I have a sticky note open on my computer uh, so I can take notes as I'm listening. And I'll pause if I need to to write down something specific. Um, but I don't know. I think, honestly, Sandy is a lot better at that than me. But, at uh, pulling up the specific details. And I think I told her up front that until I had childcare, she was going to have to be the person who did more of the research <laughs> on these books. Cause like, it's just been, you know, it's been me looking after the kids. Like there, there just hasn't been a moment that I'm not looking after the kids right. since the pandemic began. Mm-hmm. Has going into books with, you know, when you're talking with Sandy on the pod and you, as you have done more of these episodes and you have a better sense of her approach to maybe just fiction in general, or do you find her like consciousness when you're reading, when you know, you're going to be talking to her about it? Do you feel like you are anticipating what she's going to be saying? And is that coloring your understanding of these books? Um, You know, it's, uh, that's a really wonderful question. And I'm not just saying that to stall because I already have an answer, but I really, um, <laughs> I just appreciate that question. And I think it's, it's, I'm excited to talk about it because I can never anticipate what Sandy is going to say about anything. And it's part of what makes her um, incredibly valuable as a friend. It's part of why I really enjoy her company um, under any circumstances. Like I can come up with something that seems to me like, house of cards with a diamond on top (laughs) and i'm like look at this diamond and um here are a bunch of cards that i used to get to it and she's like i disagree with the table (laughs) and i'm like what the table surely we can both agree table you know i thought you were going to disagree with the cards she's like (laughs) I like the diamond, unfortunately, not table, you know? Oh my God, I Um, love that. And I just love that. Yeah. It comes through on the podcast. I mean, it comes, the, when you guys disagree, it's my favorite thing because usually (laughs) there's some kind of effort to reconcile by both of you. It's Mm -hmm. like this, like, I don't know. I feel like you both have like these packs of dogs ahead of you. Like, no, 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 we do agree. And you're like, (laughs) You're like on the Iditarod after agree and you, I don't know. I always think of it as packs of dogs for some reason with you guys, but uh, yeah, (laughs) I don't know. Sorry. This tea is fucked up. (laughs) You got that good shit. That good lavender shit. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. It's uh, it's fun to hear you guys go back and forth. Even if I've rarely read the book. (laughs) Um, I, I really appreciate you listening to a whole lot of episodes of our podcast. I love your podcast too. And I'm really, really honored to be here. I'm looking forward to when you guys come on as guests. Oh Oh my goodness. We're going to stink it up in there, man. Yeah. I was going to say, it's going to have to be (laughs) one of those maybe childhood anxiety books. We could crush that. (laughs) Can we get one published in the 20th century and just make this thing happen? Because my God. Um. Well, so what have you guys learned about parenthood during the pandemic? Like, what did that mean? Man, to you? 
I, uh, I, I think like before the pandemic, I was, um, speaking of anxiety, my, my then seven-year-old, um, was experiencing a lot, experiencing a lot of anxiety about going to school. Like he would say in the morning, like he was so nervous, he didn't want to go. And it was just becoming a lot because it is a lot. It's like five full days to go to school is too much, I think. Um, And so I just kept thinking like, I got to do something. I got to like change something. Something needs to change. And then he was home and like, you know, the pandemic is an awful thing and I hate it, but like him being home and sort of like re sewing himself back into the daily lives you know, cause my little ones were always home. Um, and he was always the one who was going to school and like, you know, going off to do stuff and yeah. him being like in a, an integral part of our, of our daily little, you know, lives. It, it did, you know, it, it changed everything for the better for him and for us. Um, and then I remember also thinking like, I really like, Ben, my husband is like missing out on so many things that I know he would hate. He's hating that he misses out on because he goes to work. He doesn't, you know, Yeah. now he doesn't miss anything. And it's so I, I've learned that like our family unit, family unit really likes being together. And, um, and that's, you know, I feel like that's really great to know, <laughs> you yeah. know, like, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's been, it's, I mean, my daughter was, my youngest daughter was born during the pandemic. And <laughs> so that was a trip. Um, yeah. Just kind of going through, uh, obviously, I was in the room, but just seeing what Britt had to go through delivering a baby during a pandemic and kind of just early days, you know, what it's like to take a walk with a mask outside and as opposed to, you know, letting our older daughter run around like crazy at the park, just like, you know, yeah. moments like that, obviously that you guys can relate to just being altered in a way that is so striking was troubling. But um, I don't know. I feel like in a lot of ways, my everything changed and kind of nothing changed. We sold our condo, we bought a house, we moved, uh, and yet I my love your house photos. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's Alex, like Alex is always like, Yeah, you know, like uh had a baby, moved the house, you know, like trying <laughs> to sell this novel, you know, like my work is crazy, like I'm always like I never sleep, but you know, it's normal. And it's like you are <laughs> in <laughs> the thick of it. Alex impression. <laughs> oh my god. He won't let himself acknowledge that he's in the thick of it, but I get it. I get it. No, I you're know in the thick do. of it. You, you're in the thick of it. Uh, <laughs> the thickest of the thick. Yeah. But I mean, at the same time, you know, a big part of the pandemic for me has been doing this with Lindsay and, you know, it just, it, this, this whole project came about cause I reached out to Lindsay. Mm-hmm. Um, I needed help finding a therapist. I wasn't doing that well. And I knew Lindsay would help me and, you know, we had a conversation about that. And then I think in that same conversation, Lindsay said we should have a podcast. And, yep. and so this has been kind of a, a really joyful part of my weeks during, during the pandemic and bringing friends in like you, Catherine, to talk. And it's just been such a great way for us to feel, feel like writers, feel like people. And 
yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm just grateful for this to exist and i had definitely isolated myself i got off twitter which nobody should have to be on twitter but it really did like i really did shut myself off from like the writing community because um like i wasn't doing readings obviously and you know like everything all the writers are on twitter talking to each other and i um i didn't realize how that how that can make you feel it's good because you're you're expending like your creative energy toward your work and you're not like always in your head thinking like i hope these fancy people on twitter like my work you're you know you're more focused and and like insular in a good way for me yeah. at least yeah yeah but like getting back um I still don't like, I still don't think people have to be on Twitter, but I, I like getting, getting to have these conversations and hearing from writers and like, it's been, it's been amazing. So yes, like I agree, like this has been like, we had to do what we could do from home. And it just turned out that like talking to amazing writers like you from our home is something we could do. Yeah. Um, I also want to shout out my therapist. Mm. (laughs) It's like my podcast, my therapist my writer friends, non-writer friends. But um, yeah, I, I think that that's a really valuable part of the story of um, reaching out to friends, connecting for support when things get tough and then finding that those like deepened or increased bonds. Um, I don't know, like, I mean, I guess it was in like April that Sandy reached out to me and suggested we start a podcast Oh, wow. Um, That's so it took a really long time to not feel like I was like, oh, yeah, I'm like starting a podcast or whatever. <laughs> yes. like, I just I had this feeling that it was inevitably going to turn into like the kayak and the garage that's just gathering. Yes. Um, we felt but- the same way. And like we kept egging each other on like we would like go dark and we wouldn't talk to each other for a couple weeks. And then Alex would be like, OK, so I've been li- I've been researching like storage and like how you put up a podcast or like, I would be like, okay, I think I know how we can get some mics, you know, (laughs) like just egging each other on and like daring each other into it. Wait, Alex, can you do like five seconds of Lindsay impression? I just want to know if this is a mutual thing or if I will not give her that satisfaction. No, (laughs) it's all I want though. Oh my God. It's all I want in this world. (sighs) I I was just going to say that I also feel like, um, my friendship with Sandy really like it just became so much more rewarding when we had this sort of joint venture that we were working on right. we talking all the time. And, and then I just, I think that about you guys also, like, obviously we have our group chat, but then like listening to your podcast and sort of understanding you from more different angles. It's part of the joy of being a writer for me is that you don't just talk to your friends. You also get to hear their more considered thoughts from their writing and then you get to listen to their podcasts which is somewhere in between their more considered thoughts and their more conversational self it's true it's awesome it's it's a great kind of access yeah it makes for sure me personally feel like you know like I'm still making you know like that's the thing is I just want to be making absolutely yeah yeah 
<sighs> Catherine, oh, thank you so home. much. Thank <laughs> you so much for coming on. That was. Uh... I think we're having a hard time letting you go, but we will let you go. I know. I, I like want to keep going, and then I'm like, we oh, we actually have to wrap this up. All right. Thank you so much for. Thank you, Catherine. Thank this you. Was like, so oh, this is such a pleasure. That was fun. That was so fun and so different. I uh I couldn't get enough of her. No, she's yeah, she's like yeah, she's one of the more interesting people I've met. I'm really mad that I can't go get that book and read it right now. Well, you can I mean, you I know. I know that yeah, I can. Sure. But in a store, you know. Well, you will be able to. I'm pretty confident. I mean, my goodness. Yeah. I don't have much. I feel like I don't have, I feel like the past couple of weeks, I just, I'm like, I don't remember. I don't remember. It's not, and I don't have, I'm not even able to string together words right now. Is that because you're Tai Tai? I might be, but I did read two. I, that, how to do nothing. You got to read it. It's great. I loved it. I am excited to read it. I'm going to dig it out. I'm reading um, Notes on a Silencing, Lacey Crawford right now. Oh, I don't know um, it. So it's about a sexual assault that she, suffered when she was at a boarding school in the 90s or like the late maybe it was 1990 um from two fellow students who were like a year older two years older than her and um I kept seeing it like people mentioning it and I just um I I I mentioned this to you earlier that I've just been reading nonstop books about traumatized women um Mm -hmm. and I I keep asking myself why. And then it hit me the other day. Oh, because you're a traumatized woman. That's why you keep reading these things about traumatized women and probably why I love true crime. But anyway, I kept seeing people mentioning it. And then, um, you know, there's like, I think someone was like, oh, this, this book is, is so wonderful, but it also reads like fiction. And I feel like that's such a, a backhanded compliment for a nonfiction book because <laughs> it's fine for it to read like nonfiction or memoir. But it really right. does. It's it's um like it's weirdly funny. She's really funny, huh. and and has her her very own unique style of of writing. And so I really love it. And you know, as as usual, when these kinds of memoirs are good, they're sort of like circling around many different things mm-hmm. in the writer's life, and um and tying it to you know like what happened and then what happened after, and so. That's what's happening now. Really loving it. I read Mrs. Caliban the other day based on All right. yeah. Megan Phillips. Hi, Megan. Hi, Megan. Um, recommendation, but she also was sweet enough to e- to mail me a copy. Um, so thank you so much, Megan. I read it like in a day and also a traumatized woman, <laughs> but fiction. <laughs> and uh, I was telling Alex like, and I was telling Alex and Megan um, that all I felt after I was done reading it was rage like this deep, like sadness filled rage um, because it's a book about grief and it's a book about like what the mind does in intense grief. Um, and like, I think a specific kind of grief of a, of a woman. Um, and so it's one of those books that like teaches you how to read it. And then it feels very lighthearted almost. And then you put it down um, it's a very, you know, quick, easy read. And then it just kind of like explodes <laughs> or that's what it did for me. Yeah. Um, so I look forward to talking about this more on our Patreon. <laughs> 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 Which we have 
not set up and which we talk about all the time. So that will happen eventually. <laughs> we can talk about more books. I don't know why that's so funny to me, but it, it is. It's it's just the kind of thing that makes me laugh. <laughs> oh my God. Um, but anyway, uh, anything you want to tell us about what you're working on? Oh yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, so I'm going through notes. I, I got back on my novel that I was, I was waiting for and uh, this, this said it's going well. I'm feeling excited about the project again. And not that I wasn't, but no, no. there's like that awful doubt that you feel when you're waiting. And then I was like rereading portions of it thinking like, is this good? Is this bad? this is, I don't know what this is. I can't believe, you know, just you feel disassociated for, from the project sometimes when you know that it's being intensely scrutinized, even mm-hmm. if, even if it's from someone that you have like a working relationship with and have a sense of how they feel, it still feels like just being completely exposed. And so it was a, a relief to get notes back that I'm excited about. And I feel good about the project. So going back through that and yeah, it feels good. good. Matt Salisis was, um, he tweeted about this today, I think. And someone had put an excerpt from his book, which was advice that he himself had gotten, which was if you're bored going back through your book, that's a bad sign because mm. your book is boring. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I think can be terrifying because we often feel all sorts of different terrible things about what we're writing. Oh, yeah. But yeah. Um, I thought that was an interesting point because I don't know that I've ever been bored going back yeah. through something I, unless yeah. you know i just dropped it but <laughs> yeah i don't know i i feel like sometimes those very sharp aphoristic lines like that are totally true and then sometimes it's just like uh, no i don't know maybe you don't know maybe. me matt salisis yeah exactly who knows but i wasn't um, bored i was excited at every page um see and i think also it can be tied up in like shame Someone else was talking about this. I think Mm. someone just wrote about editing as shame. I'm trying to remember Mm. who it was or feeling shame as you're revising. Um, Yeah, that sounds right. Because, you know, like it's part of you there. And it's Mm -hmm. almost like putting a note in someone's locker. I was thinking like (laughs) emailing my agent. Do you like me? Yes or no. (laughs) You know, like it feels like that. Like, what have I done? done What have I done? Probably thousands of people have done that. Yeah. Or like that old young ones bit where Rick Mayall comes in and he's like, hands up, who likes me? And nobody raises their hands. <laughs> oh, that's what it's like being a writer. So fun. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> I'm a writer, but is recorded by Alex Higley and me, Lindsay Hunter, in our respective basements. Because there's a pandemic out there, please wear a mask. Yeah, yeah. Editing by Lindsay Hunter. Music by Max Loop. Oh, my God. <laughs>